0: Take a look at the scriptures. We're we're winding down our study of First and Second Thessalonians. Um, Where this is the the penultimate ser- uh, message, so the, the second to last. Um, I bet when I started this, you all didn't think I could do twelve weeks on on two little letters. Um, but there, there's actually, if we really wanted to, we could take the passage we're going to look at today and probably spend six to eight weeks just on this passage. Um, but we're we're going to just go through it and so I, I, I made you a diagram now this is a complicated diagram all right the answers are really hard to find it's just word for word from the Bible so so we're just going to go through and we're just going to fill this kind of flow of what the scriptures are what the scriptures say and how they're related to one another um, and, and connect all these pieces because when we read the Bible and and we read the text of the scriptures and it's just laid out like this it's just two columns or one column on a piece of paper with numbers we tend to we tend to just read it straight down and not realize that there's a lot of dynamic to the way um, that the scriptures are written especially Paul he has a lot of, of, of ways of fitting things together so closely that if you don't sit and analyze and think about it and discuss it and talk about it, you're not going to get everything that he's trying to say. Um, and sometimes he seems to be repetitive. This is one of the things that's really interesting about Paul. Um, you, will, you will encounter the same word over and over in Paul, and sometimes he is, he is pushing you. He's nudging you a certain direction and nudging you another direction so that you're, you're exploring what it is that he's talking about. And so we want to do that with. Uh, we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter five and verses twelve to twenty-one, and uh, we're going to fill in the blanks and we're going to talk a little bit about it. I've got some questions for you. Um, so, so um, have uh, as my as my dad used to say, um, have your active ears on, um, and uh, be thinking about thinking about what what's what's flowing out of this text. So let's. Let's read the verses 12 through 21, and then we're going to just dive right into it. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but also seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then he does his benediction. So it actually... It uh, goes to 22. I numbered that wrong, um, but it goes to verse 22. And uh, and we're going to deal with the benediction next week, even though it is technically part of the same flow. But let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to just dive into this and start start discussing what this text means. Father, as we again come to your word, as we come to the scriptures, Lord, help us have our, our eyes opened and our our hearts filled with your spirit. As you guide and teach and direct us, may our minds be turned uh, to your mind and your will. Lord, as we we take written words and we consider how how they uh, speak to us about the living word, uh, Lord, may we know Christ and know him better and bring glory to your name. We pray this, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this all to you. Amen. So he starts with this statement, and he says, or this question, or this uh, uh, command. He says, "We ask you." This this articulation. We ask you, brothers and sisters. Um, he's he's presenting to them a, a challenge. I'm going to ask you to do something. Um, and when he does this, he breaks it down into two pieces. There are two infinitive verbs here. Now, an infinitive verb is a verb without time or aspect. That's what that means. Um, so in English, we say to go, to walk, to stand. That's our infinitive form. Um, we, we don't actually, he, uh, uh, English doesn't actually have an infinitive form, and so we have to stick the word to at the beginning of it. Most languages actually have a form for this, and it simply means the, the state of this. Put inside of his statement, we ask you, he is, he's basically giving us a pair of things, so they fit together. He says, we ask you, uh, first of all, to respect, to respect those who, and then he's going to give us a list of three characteristics. Um, When he talks about respect, he's talking about seeing them as what they are, showing, giving worth to what is worthy. That's what showing respect is. Um, and he says to respect those who are, and he gives those who, and he gives us a list of three things. Those who labor among you are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So he's describing for us the leaders of the Christian community. And this first section deals with our relationship to Christian leadership. And the first category that he gives us is to respect. But then he gives us the function of that leadership, or rather, the quality of Christian leadership. And the first quality that he gives us is that they labor among you. That these are not people who are hired guns, these are not people who are somehow superior. Um, they're not people that walk around in, in, in hassocks and, and uh, devote themselves and live in, a, in, in monasteries, but rather that Christian leaders are those who labor among you. One of the things that Paul always emphasizes, and he's emphasized it in, in these letters, he's emphasized the fact that we need to watch out for people that never do anything. They just have everybody else do things for them. He says they should be those that labor among you. But they are also those who are over you in the Lord. Now what does he mean by over you? does he he mean dominating? does he mean ruling? or does he simply mean that God appoints in the church and he calls and equips and anoints some people who are given to be uh, to be um, guides, um, shepherds, uh, caretakers, pastors, elders, deacons, those who are meant to guide in relationship to others it's not a permanent overness so it's not like when god creates the church he just goes okay these are all the underlings underling 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 and these are the over people and let's make sure that everybody knows who the over people are let's put their name on a sign blink it Uh, we were joking around yesterday at the men's breakfast about what my title should be after i get my doctorate and i'm a big fan of the left reverend now, if you've ever heard the right reverend doctor so-and-so, I want to be the left reverend doctor so-and-so. I just I just think that'd be funny. Um, I'd get in all kinds of political arguments over that because they're like, well, are you left or right? And I'm like, I don't know. I can never remember which one is which. Um, I go, oh, that's, all right, this is the right hand. They so make an L. Um, they're over you. All right, so they labor among you. There's a quality of being a part of the church. Leaders are not independent of the church, but they are also gifted in such a way to be leaders, to be over you, to be that, that description, and they admonish you. Of course, that's the aspect of leadership that nobody ever wants to talk about, the fact that sometimes leaders have to tell us that what we're doing is wrong, that, that sometimes we have to refine and correct that, that leadership is not just encouragement. It's not just giving a smile and telling you, you're great. Um, sometimes it's about, no, don't do that. Um, we should do it this way. Um, leadership is about having the guts to say no at times. So he gives these three qualities of these. And, and I, would, I would submit to you this is a very balanced view of leadership. Because those who are laboring among us, those who are working with us, are going to be less likely to lord their authority over us. But those who are over us, they, they are less likely to, um, they are less likely to um, uh, those who admonish us are less likely to uh, abuse their authority because they're responsible to a standard. Then he gives us a second pair, a second infinitive, and he says to esteem them very highly. Now esteem, again, it's, it's a flip side of respect. It is, again, this idea of simply placing value upon value, saying that someone has this. It, it is not taking somebody and saying, oh, this person is way up here. A title does not make the man or the woman. The woman or man makes the title. And so to esteem very highly them, to esteem them very highly, why? Because of their office, because of their role, because of their, their title, because of how many acronyms they have printed at the end of their name. No, to esteem them because of their work. Well, what is their work? To labor among us, to be over us in the Lord, to admonish us. Christian leadership is a role that we earn through Christian ministry through labor, through effort. Just because uh, somebody somebody gets a piece of paper that says that they're ordained to be a minister does not make them a minister. When, when I was ordained um, a while ago, I don't remember when it was exactly, and my ordination certificate was filled out with a ballpoint pen so I can't read it anymore, um, but uh, it looked real pretty until it hit the sun, and then it just disappeared. Um, but uh, when I was ordained, um, we were told in my ordination council, my, and if you don't know how this works, when somebody is ordained to ministry in a Baptist church, um, a, the pastor recommends, their pastor recommends them to um, a, a group of, of pastors of like faith, and they, have, they convene for a, a meeting, and they discuss doctrine. You have to write a statement of faith. You have to defend your statement of faith. You, you, there's a, there's a, a thing. And then there's a public uh, demonstration with everybody around where the, the, this council of pastors then asks you a bunch of public questions. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but for some reason, um, my pastor decided that he wanted to ordain me and my friend Mike at the same time. Um, and so we got to sit on the council and only answer half the questions because the other guy was answering questions um, In fact, he afterwards he said you did a really good job of just deflecting any question. You didn't want to answer to me. I was like, yeah it's leadership, right? Um, but uh, but we we uh, we were we were told and and this is this is just how it's done in certain churches We were told going in our pastor said to us. Don't worry about these guys um, they're just going to do whatever I tell them to do. That the 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 pastors, the council of pastors, their their voice didn't really matter. Um, we we were going to be ordained, so it, don't worry about it. Now, of course, the issue with this, and he should have thought of this, is that there was one particular pastor on my ordination council that you should never tell that their voice doesn't matter. Do you want to guess who it was? My dad. So my father <laughs> says to me, he goes, you better be ready. I'm like, oh boy, it is, it is, it is coming. Now, he was nice and he didn't do anything because um, my dad had been my pastor for, for most of my life. He knew me. He knew, he knew my friend Mike. So he was nice when he actually got to the council but he said to me, he said, I'll never sit on another ordination council with that guy again if he tells me that my I don't get to make a decision on this, that we're just there for show. And the problem is just because somebody has a certificate that says they're ordained or somebody has a certificate that says that they they have some kind of qualification or just because somebody has a title, that doesn't make them a Christian leader. Leadership is called to labor, to be, um, to be among us. It's, called, it's a responsibility of, of overwatch. It's a responsibility of shepherding. It's a, it's a responsibility of admonition. You've got to be careful of any Christian leader that never tells you, never tells anyone they ever do anything wrong. That's a dangerous situation. But those who do this, he calls us to respect them and to esteem them very highly. Now, and I would encourage you that this does not just apply to pastors. It, require, it, it, it re- applies to all areas of Christian leadership, parenting, um, being an employer, um, uh, ministry leadership, uh, caring for people, teaching, a, teaching children, being a part of a Christian education, being a part of regular education, whatever it is that you're doing. We are called to a role of laboring among us, being our authority coming from the Lord, and admonition. And that's difficult. And so those of us who are under that leadership then, respecting and esteeming that leadership is important. That doesn't mean you can't disagree. Respect does not mean that you don't disagree. In fact, I would I would point out that respect means, by definition, that if you disagree, you express it in the right way. I would, I would say that esteeming very highly implies to it a certain amount of accountability. I'm sure if many of you are familiar, some of you are familiar with uh, the big brouhaha that happened over a, a Christian minister who passed away recently, had a big, huge ministry, and it was discovered that he had a lifestyle of licentiousness. And you say, how does that happen? It's simple. It happens when leaders are not held to a, the accountability of the scriptures. When we say so and so would never ever abuse the power or authority that we give to them, they would. Ne- we don't need to check. Now, um, I think Ray. I think I can comfortably say we're both moral guys, right? Right. I hope. Right, Carol. Would you ca- characterize him as? Ah. Although, although Ray and I would never, you know, I don't think it would ever occur in either one of our heads as pastors, and he pastored for 20-some years, as a pastor to ever take funds and allocate it to a different, you know, well, you know, and this money is for building the bathrooms, but uh, Daddy needs a new BMW, so, you know. But if there's no accountability, there's no one keeping track of what you're doing, and you do something small and nobody notices you do something a little bigger nobody notices before too long it's bad and so that's why when people say well why do you have these weird accountability things like like I won't be in a building alone with a woman it doesn't matter how old she is good looking or otherwise I just I just won't be in a building and people say why won't you do that you're you're a good guy you're married to an awesome woman you know, you would never fail, but I still am accountable. I still have to I have to be held to a standard. Leaders have to be held to standards. Anyway, that's a side tangent. I have a whole other sermon about that. To respect to esteem. Let's get into our relationship with our fellow Christians. Now, in your Bibles, it this line, be at peace among yourselves, is part of verse thirteen. I, I would contend that it's actually part of the next section. Um, it should really be a part of verse 14. Uh, there's a going joke that the verses of the Bible were were established by a guy riding a horse. Um, that it, they make no sense. They pick up in weird places. Um, and uh, and this is a case where 13 really we finish the statement. Uh, esteem them very highly and love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, it's a transitional statement. So he's talking about leaders, but then he's also talking about our relationship to other believers, particularly in the church. And he says this, we urge you, brothers and sisters. In other words, I'm putting the impetus. Now, before he said, we ask you. Now he's elevating it. Now we're urging you. So I would even contend that probably this first part was an issue that they did not have a problem with, the the Thessalonians probably didn't have a trouble with their leadership, but they were struggling a little bit with this interpersonal thing. And so he urges them, "Be at peace among yourselves and we urge you." And then he lists four things, four commands he gives. Imperatives is the mood of a command. He gives us four commands. He says, "Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all." So Um, let's just not talk about that fourth one. Um, no, let's, so let's talk about this. What is he doing? And then he gives us this statement at the end that if you're not careful, you kind of put it as separate in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but also seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now I'm going to talk about these first, these four, but what I want you to do as we do this, I think that there are two sides to each of these commands. There is a see that no one repays evil with evil to the side to the command, and there is seek to do good to one another side of the command. So the first one is, he says, to admonish the idle, I-D-L-E. What does it mean to be idle? I think we all know this, right? If a car is an idle, what is it not doing? It's not moving. It's just idling. And he says to admonish the idol. Earlier, Paul had talked about how you need to work. You need to be part of things. You need to be creating. You need to be doing. And so he says admonish the idol. Uh, get them moving. Correct them. You can't just sit there. There's something to be done. How would... What, What's a way that we might repay evil for evil with an idle person? Think about it. No, I'm not. You're not helping me. I'm not going to help you. Lazy bum. Right? Um, it's very easy for us to just get into a reciprocity. Well, you're lazy. You're not doing anything for me. I'm just not going to do anything for you. Right? Now, what's a way that we might seek to do good to everyone in admonishing the idol? What's a way that we might seek to do good when admonishing the idol? How many of you ever had uh, uh, like a, a money problem, and somebody's answer to it was, well, spend less? Now, while that's probably true, probably an accurate statement, what do we have to actually do in order to correct that pattern? What? Demonstrate it. Show them steps to take. Right? So, so, I mean, somebody says, somebody says, well, I don't, I, you know, I don't know where all my money goes. Okay. First step, find out. (laughs) Right? Like, like if you, you had somebody say that to you, I don't know where all my money goes. It's like, well, find out. Do you have your receipts? You know, do you, do you know where you're spending money? Did, do you just, is, is your aunt, I mean, and you know, today, now back in the day, you might've said that it was like, they just never knew to take out their wallet. One of the things is, I mean, honestly, online shopping, money disappears like nothing, right? Like, you're like, ooh, the complete run of the Muppets, only $125, you know? It's very easy for money to disappear like that. And so, you know, you have to, if we're going to seek to do good, then when we're admonishing the idol, we have to actually give them steps. We have to give them a process. We have to show them how to do it how to take, take the steps that they need to take to admonish the idle. Secondly, he says, to encourage the faint-hearted. So we've got, we've got the, the, the guy that's doing nothing, all right? So the person that's doing nothing, um, we should get them to do something. But then we've got this encourage the faint-hearted. Well, here's somebody who is doing something, but now is struggling for some reason because of what they've been doing. They, they're faint-hearted. I mean, it's an interesting English turn of phrase, but it's—they're it's, just—they're just—they're downtrodden. They—they just—it doesn't matter anymore. I'm just struggling with this. And how how could we, unfortunately, repay evil with evil with a person that's in that state? What's a way that somebody might repay evil when some they encounter someone who is just faint-hearted? what? Yeah, you should just quit. It's not working. You know? Um, you know, it's like, ah, you know, you got spare kids. Let that one go. To admonish, the, uh, to encourage the faint-hearted, how can we then seek to do good with the faint-hearted? How many of you have been encouraged by someone when you were struggling? What did they do? Come alongside of you? They carry the burden with you for a little while? One of the things that, that, that you know, I, I enjoy um, a, a privilege of being able to, and again, I mentioned them before, but a privilege to have conversations with my dad um and and we will talk about uh ministry now my dad is coming up on uh 2022 will be his 30th anniversary at the church he's at um and it's like 10 people right um but he's happy this is he he ministered but I'll, I'll I'll call my dad up or I'll talk to him and I'll just vent out my oh, i just don't want to do this anymore i'm so frustrated And almost always his response is, but this isn't about you. Who is this about? Why are you in this? How did you, why are you, why are you in the ministry? What does the scripture say? And, and although sometimes he can be gruff and he can be direct and, um, and sometimes if his pain meds are wacky, he can be a little goofy, um, but. But, you know, the encouragement to say, you know, this isn't about you. This is about the ministry. This is about Christ. You need, to, you need to get down to the foundation of what you're doing. Maybe it's time to rebuild. Maybe it's time to renew. Sometimes it's time to let some aspect of ministry die. But whatever it takes for you to, be, uh, to find the strength to be encouraged to lift up. Then what about help the weak? What kind of evil can we do to the weak? Now, we should be able to answer this question all over the place. How do people repay evil for evil when they encounter a weak person? Take advantage of it. Weakness, we see weakness and we go, and, and this is human nature, maybe not everybody feels this, but sometimes you see a weakness and you go, well, they deserve to be taken advantage of because they're so weak, you know, they're so weak, they they, they can't do this. But what about seeking to go- do good for the weak, to help the weak? How can we do good to help the weak? What's something we can do for the weak? take some of their burden, strengthen them, right? I mean, because honestly, I mean, we want to. We, we can help them out for a little while, but eventually they've got to be able to bear the weight on their own. And to me, with the week, it's always been, uh, for me, it's, it's, I go back to the idea of the muscle memory of riding a bike. And I remember teaching Ariel how to ride a bike, and she had this pink banana seat bike with tassels and twirlies. It was mine from when I was a child. No, not really. Um but she you know she she riding a bike when she first started riding a bike i had to i had to be there i had to provide a little bit of the balance so that her muscles could acquire the rhythm of going up and down on the pedals so that it, and then after a while i could just let go and i would run alongside her uh, i can run from time to time i don't like to but i can and i would run alongside her and i have my hand next to that handle and that if you know what a banana seat bike is they've got like a little handle in the back and I would run alongside, and I'd have my hand ready. If she started to wobble, I'd, I'd just kind of touch it and just help her. And then eventually, she didn't need me to do that. Eventually, she developed the muscles that she needed to be able to ride that bike. Now, she still struggles. Even at 16, having her driver's license, she still struggles with remembering, you know, which hand to use for the motions and all that stuff. And um, she doesn't like riding on busy roads. She'll take a car on a road she would never take a bike on, which I kind of understand, especially in Merrimack where people think that they get extra points for getting close to bicycles. I'm infamous for tapping people's cars as they ride by me. It's not a safe thing. You shouldn't do it, Um, especially because people get upset at you, but they shouldn't be that close. Anyway, um, I have issues. So helping the weak, we can encourage the weak. We can progressively help them get stronger, strengthen them up. And then he says, be patient with all. Be patient with all. Not just be patient with some, be patient with all. Now, patience does not mean that we accept failure, weakness, idleness, faint-heartedness. Being patient doesn't mean we go, well, we can't say anything. You know, I know that they're doing a terrible job, but if we say anything, we're not being patient. We have to be patient with the outcome, but we need to work the process. We have to grow and develop and be changed. So then he gives us, real quick, um, personal disciplines. There's no big idea today, by the way, in case you're wondering. We're just going through this text. So if you're waiting for me to kind of, like, land the plane, here we go. Personal disciplines. First of all, he says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. What do those three statements have in common? The modifiers of the verbs, rejoice, pray, give thanks, all three of those modifiers are universal. It doesn't say rejoice sometimes, pray but take breaks, give thanks in most circumstances. It's all, all, all. And the idea is we find joy in all things. You want to know how to avoid repaying evil with evil? Find joy in caring, admonishing, encouraging, helping, and being patient with people. Find joy in that. Find joy in the challenges you face. You say, pray without ceasing. Does that mean that we're just constantly muttering prayers and all? was like, uh, no. But it means that we don't answer challenges and go, well, this one doesn't need prayer. Then we don't face days and we go, well, today is a quarantine day. There's no reason to pray. I'm not going anywhere, but rather that prayer is a continual presence in our lives, a constant in our lives, and then he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, if you look at these three things, you can kind of see an aspect of these are all looking from the inside out, right? Rejoice, pray, give thanks all the time. But then it gives us us a statement for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So this is what God wants for you. This is where he wants you to be. He wants you to find joy in all things. He wants you to be praying. He wants you to give thanks. Now, finding joy in all things does not mean walking around with a smile on your face all the time. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is contentment in the situation God has placed you in, even in the difficult ones, even in the ones that require you to be strong and forceful and admonishing and all of those things, to rejoice. Happiness is walking around smiley because the world is great butterflies and banana bike wings, banana seat bikes with tassels. This is the will of God. But then he gives us three practical choices that I think tie into those universal statements the first one is do not quench the spirit i think that ties to rejoicing i think that we when we choose not to rejoice in what god is doing we are questioning and quenching the holy spirit you say, well, quench not the Holy Spirit. That means like, you know, church services go and the music is fantastic, you know, and somebody's banging the tambourine at the wrong pace. You shouldn't tell them to stop. That's not what this is about. By all means, teach them. This falls under it. Uh, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Teach them how to hit the tambourine on the two and four, please. But quenching the Spirit, the Spirit of God wants to work in the church and we should be finding joy in what God is doing. And so when we refuse to find joy in what God is doing in our lives and our ministry, we are quenching the Spirit. Then he says, pray without ceasing. And there's a flip side of that. He says, do not, do not despise prophesies. prophecies. Now, I, I'm of the opinion that these prophecies, prophecy is of two characters. There is prophecy which foretells the future. Um, and that is a very specific biblical calling um, that exists in certain situations. For the most part, prophecy, if you go through the Old Testament and you read most of what the prophets do, they say, thus saith the Lord in situations where people are in sin, need correction. In other words, prophecy is preaching. It's biblical teaching. And he says, pray without ceasing. thats is, That is that I'm praying. I'm seeking God um, I'm talking to God, and then I'm receiving from God. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. So test test what's being said in a sermon. Test what's being said in a book. Be, test it and hold fast what is good. Don't despise the scriptures. Don't despise um, the the teaching of the Bible to you. Hold fast what is good. And then lastly, he says, abstain from all e- from every Form of evil. Now, remember when I said at the beginning that Paul tends to circle around to ideas and muse them in slightly different ways? Remember that he previously had said, See that no one repays evil for evil. Now he says, Abstain from all forms of evil. Now, it's interesting, in kind of a low level way, that Paul puts the moral instruction be a good person. Don't do evil things. That's the very last thing he talks about. Most of the time, we take all the moral rules and we put them at the beginning. We say, "Don't do this, do that, do this, do, do that." These are all the rules. Follow the rules, and everybody great. Paul puts the moral at the end. Abstain from all evil. But think about the relationship of giving thanks in all circumstances and abstaining from all evil. You say, "Well, thanks and, and evil. Giving thanks and evil. They don't have a relationship, do they?" Let me ask you a question. Would you destroy something you were thankful for? Would would you, if you were truly thankful for a relationship, would you then do, would you abuse that relationship for your own advantage if you were truly thankful for it? If you were truly thankful for for the, the the funds that you were given that that God provides you that you're a steward of. Are you are you then going to take those things that you're truly thankful for and waste it on stuff that you don't that that t- goes against the priorities of Christ? See, thankfulness and abstaining from evil really have a relationship. You want to say, how how do I how do I make sure how do I make sure that I don't mistreat the people in my, li- my life? That I treat them with the respect and the esteem that they deserve? That I'm at peace with people? That I, that I admonish, that I encourage, that I help, that I be patient? You, if you are thankful for something, truly thankful for it, you will not abuse it. It's when we think that things are, we're, we're, they're, they're just the default. We're not thinking about the thankfulness of it. We're not thinking about the priority of it. We're not thinking about how wonderful it is that God has provided it to us. That's that's when we start to do evil things. That's when and you say, "Well, I don't I don't do evil things." It doesn't say big evil things. It says all evil. Abstain from all evil. Now, I leave it to you to make whatever applications you want to make about this in your life. But I think when we look at this passage, we see three categories that Paul is dealing with the church on with leadership, with our relationships with one another, and then in ourselves, that when they are all together, when we allow all these things to blend and mix, what we do is we create for ourselves in our community a little bit of the hope that Paul was talking about in the previous passage about when Christ comes. We create in our, in our relationships a little sliver of, a shattered and broken, sinful one for sure, but a sliver of the kingdom of God. The joy that we will have in the presence of the Lord, we can see a reflection of that in the joy we have in the relationships with others. The purity and the holiness of God is manifest in our thankfulness, which prohibits us from doing evil. When we're we're praying and we're talking to God and we're listening to the Scriptures and we're, we're learning from the Word of God, we get a little closer to the One who is our Savior and Master and Lord. And most importantly, most importantly, we're there for one another when the darkness comes. Because remember when I talked about last week that in the darkness you're always alone? As Christians, when we are nurturing each other and strengthening each other and under authority and disciplining ourselves, and we're together in the community, when the darkness comes, we're there for one another. And there's a complicated relationship. There's three layers, I think, that Paul illustrates here. This is not exhaustive. He talks about relationships in different ways in different books. But I think in this particular place, that's what he's setting us up for. The darkness is coming, and we need to be disciplined in ourselves. We need to be connected and encouraging our fellow believers, and we need to have our leaders leading us correctly. To you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we simply ask for your spirit's guidance in receiving your word. Transforming and changing us however you choose to. Doing what you will do in our midst to bring glory to your name. Lord, may our relationships always be deepened both to you and to one another. Lord, may we seek your face and then in knowing you that we might know our place in the world, that we might know our ministry to one another, that we might know our calling, uh, both as individuals and as a community. Because Lord, we know the darkness is coming. We know that uh, every every time, we're, we're reminded that the birth pains of eternity in this world, the world gets.